In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talked to Diana Moucher about GitHub's design system and how they're using functional CSS to make it easy for their engineers to write more maintainable code. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 75. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 75 of the Full Stack Radio Podcast. Uh, today it's my pleasure to be speaking with Diana Mounter, who's the Design Systems Manager at GitHub. How's it going, Diana? Good, thank you. So I guess um, for anyone who's not familiar with you, do you mind uh, just briefly introducing yourself and talking a bit about what you do at GitHub? Yeah, um, so um, as you mentioned, I'm the man- I manage the Design Systems team, um, which is uh, only a team of uh, three um, people at the moment. Um, I've been working at GitHub for almost uh, two years now. Um, I actually started off uh, in a product design role, um, but uh, quickly moved into working on design systems. And uh, prior to that, I had been working at Etsy in product design, but also on their um, early days of their um, style guide as well. So uh, that kind of... uh, led me into wanting to continue to working on that sort of thing and uh, been enjoying doing that for the last year and a half at GitHub. Awesome. Um, so from what I know about the uh, design systems, there's, there's often like a lot of crossover between just sort of a pure like design side of things, like trying to figure out, you know, what the product looks like, um, what sort of patterns do we want to use to make things look consistent. And then there's also like a technical component, right, of like how do we provide this design system in sort of a you know, code-based way uh, to people on the team uh, to be able to use. Um, what side, I guess, do you fall more on or do you kind of take care of both sides? Both sides, to be honest. Um, I definitely um, have entered into uh, this sort of uh, discipline, I guess, from more from a, a design perspective. Um, I, I, my background is in very like user-centric design processes and over the years working on um, small and large-scale products, I, I kind of noticed this sort of pattern of what I would call UX debt, um, where as over, the, over time um, lots of inconsistencies would um, grow across the product and um, there was a need for a holistic um, approach to um, UI patterns and that's I guess what led me into design systems as well as an interest in um, front-end development and being interested in some of the the uh, approaches that were emerging towards um, handling um, uh, CSS and things like um, object-oriented CSS and, and uh, utility-centric approaches to um, handling that sort of thing. So I think there was an interest for me in both the uh, user needs and making a consistent experience and then um, how to make CSS and, or whatever code you're working with easier to, to work with. So on design, in, the, in the design systems team at GitHub, we, we need to work on both things. Awesome. That's perfect. That means uh, we have a lot of stuff we're going to be able to talk about then. Um, So I guess um, the first thing that I'd be interested in knowing is um, working on the design systems team at GitHub, uh, what sort of problems and pains is it your job to sort of solve? Um, Well, uh, there's some technical debt, um, 
or quite a lot of CSS technical debt to, to work on. Um, we were trying to reduce the amount of uh, custom CSS that exists in the code base and use um, Primer, which is our design system, um, in more places. So there's a, a lot of work to do there in terms of um, auditing and um, auditing patterns and um, from a design and a code um, sense and refactoring those or, or deprecating um, CSS in replace of using the sort of established primer um, patterns. So that, that's definitely one um, aspect. Um, another thing was just to introduce some sort of systematic approach to, um, um, to primer in the first place. Um, there wasn't really a good sense of foundational sort of um, primitive um, systematic approaches to things like typography, spacing, or color initially. So we, we introduced um, uh, scales and, and patterns there. Um, and, and we started with um, also trying to make CSS easier to work with. Uh, so for us, that was introducing things like utilities so that people could design easier in the browser. And then um, moving those patterns over to um, the, the component level as well. And then, um, you know, a, a fair amount of um, a new sort of product development generates the need for new patterns. So as we see new patterns emerging um, as, as different product teams are working on different features, then it's our job to help um, fold those patterns back in, into the design system as well. And aside from all of that, we also provide um, general support with working on the front end um, at GitHub. So we do a lot of um, code review and help um, fix bugs and um, give people advice, pair with them. Um, and, uh, and then also um, we're working more on design tooling um, and tools that help make um, the sort of design to implementation process easier. Awesome, so, awesome. A lot of hats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. That's a, a lot of interesting stuff to talk about. Actually, um, I'd like to start kind of at the beginning there. You talk about um, how one of your responsibilities is to sort of figure out strategies for tackling like CSS debt and avoiding um, custom CSS. I guess I'd be interested in knowing, like, when you talk about like custom CSS, can you give an example of what you mean? Um, I mean um, CSS that is written to work for only one location in the UI or one feature. So it's it it will be something that's very tied and to a specific thing and and isn't built for reuse. Yeah. So I think like historically that approach to writing CSS has, has been seen as like the right way to write CSS for the longest time, right? Like you have some, some element on the page and you give it some sort of class name to sort of describe what it is that you're trying to style. And then you move over to the CSS to go and style it there. But I'm seeing a trend, um, you know, in a lot of places these days, I know like Heroku as well as moving to like a much more utility focused uh, sort of internal CSS framework. I'm seeing a, a lot of movement towards like trying to avoid writing CSS at all, especially, you know, CSS that's only ever going to get used once. So I'd be interested in knowing like why you think um, that approach is uh, an improvement or what sort of benefits uh, you see from using that approach on a project that's the scale of GitHub. 
I mean, I don't think that many people really, in, a lot of people don't really enjoy writing CSS. It's, it, it adds an extra step to that, that um, development process. We're trying to speed that up and make it streamlined. And, it, and when you're having to write CSS to style something, you're having to make a whole ton of decisions there about what those styles should be and how they should be written. Um, and those, those are problems that can be solved. Um, if there's a, a pattern that's being used in a ton of places and you can um, codify that in design and code, then everyone else can use it everywhere. Um, so to me, it's like uh, removing an unnecessary step. Um, and it also means that um, more people can come across that um, code, so they, they, they're looking at their markup and seeing those, those class names and they know what that um, is going to do, they know what that CSS is doing because they've seen it before elsewhere in the code base. So it's also about improving code readability, um, it makes it easier to maintain, it makes it more reliable because you know what it's going to do and you can, um, if you write that sort of stuff well then um, you can trust that it will work in the same way everywhere. So yeah, to me it's about like streamlining that, that implementation um, process and just making it easier for maintainability and, and, um, and reuse across the code base. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think that's um, a pain that I felt myself working on teams is a lot of the time you'll, you'll be tasked with adding something to the UI and you need to style it in some way. And as soon as you need to enter into a CSS file to like make any changes, it can be like really sort of scary not knowing like what can I change without breaking some part of the site that I have never even seen. Um, and what I think people tend to do a lot is they try to craft themselves this very like specific isolated corner of the CSS where they know they can write anything they want and it's not going to affect anyone else's stuff. And I think like that's what I see just grow and grow and grow over time and turn into all this this custom CSS that never gets reused. Is that something that has sort of like built up in, in the GitHub code base as well? Yeah, yeah. It's there, there's tons and tons of CSS that yeah has been has been accumulated over time, and then people write more CSS to override other CSS elsewhere in the in the code base. And you know, to me, we want to get to a place where we, we want to write CSS that's actually easy to delete, um, and uh, custom CSS inherently isn't. And um, yeah, that just leads to a lot of bloat. Um, it leads to a lot of CSS wrangling and um, wasted time basically yeah definitely so i was watching a presentation that you gave i'm not sure when you actually gave it but the video was posted early september uh, called introducing design systems into chaos where you talked a lot about kind of what you've been doing at github to sort of improve what you're doing with design systems and try to provide uh, you know more opinions i guess to um, the engineering team when it comes to how do i add a little bit of spacing under this element or how do I change the color of this or that? Would you mind, I guess, talking a little bit about um, the approach that you've been taking to sort of take, you know, GitHub's existing style guide, um, which if anyone, you know, doesn't know what we're talking about with Primer, I remember when Primer was first open sourced, it, it almost felt like a, like a bootstrap style sort of framework specifically for GitHub, right? With buttons and um, some higher level components like alerts and blank slates and stuff like that. Uh, but in the presentation that you gave, 
everything seemed a lot more focused on sort of the lower level kind of building blocks that I think a lot of style guides and frameworks are missing. Um, so I'd love to hear more about just kind of what the approach has been to creating a design system, kind of starting at like the more atomic level instead of thinking from like a more component down top down approach, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think it it was for us about the problems that um, we needed to solve um, at, at GitHub, what our biggest pain points were. And the biggest pain point when, when I started working there was that um, uh, people were spending uh, a lot of time writing CSS and didn't shouldn't really need to be. Um, and so we started by introducing utility classes based on systems, so based on spacing scales, typography scales, and, and later um, a color system, which was defined as uh, SAS variables. Um, so that allowed us to easily add those into the code base without kind of like refactoring everything, without stopping uh, and auditing all the things and then starting to introduce a system. This allowed us to sort of do that quite quickly and, um, and without having to refactor everything. And then we could test those, um, those new systems, those topography and spacing scales, um, and, and see if they worked before starting to refactor the component level um, CSS. And so that, that worked for us because we could add it straight away. It immediately started to solve a problem for people because immediately people could not have to write extra CSS to add margin and padding and things. Um, and um, it started to speed up that um, design to development workflow. It just like unblocked people, I guess. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think it's also, um, so, so basically the approach I guess you took is like, we have a bunch of styles out of there already. If someone has like a five pixel margin somewhere, that is what it is. But like going forward, here's kind of the menu for, uh, you know, spacing, you know, utilities, right? Like maybe you have uh, four pixels or eight pixels or 12 pixels or 16 pixels, and you just kind of have to pick from what's there uh, versus when you're in CSS, you can just say, well, I think 11 pixels looks best here. And now we have some new arbitrary like value just entering into the style sheet. Yeah. Yeah, and, and over time we've been adding in um, like tests and things to and, and bots that like comment on PR to say, hey, don't use magic numbers, use use variables, or you could use um, utilities here. Um, so we, we 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 manually like ourselves started to introduce that and refactor um, UI, and then over time we've added in um, t um, tests that help. Um, everybody sort of develop um, and build things in accordance with that with those systems that's really cool so you have like bots that crawl prs and if someone's written new css basically making sure that they either used a variable or maybe they added like a single declaration that there's a utility to do that and suggests that they should have done it in the html instead like that sort of thing yeah, we well more so on the variable side of things at the moment. We've we've just only recently started to introduce this because we're still, to be honest, um, we've still got like a lot of uh, custom CSS to to kill. Yeah, and so we've we've started introducing this in parts of the code base where we we have like a 
um, high level of confidence that there's not that it's not difficult to do that there that that people aren't trying to battle existing custom CSS too much and in and in parts of the code base where we really want to um, maintain a higher sort of standard um, and but over time that will be used everywhere um, but at the moment we um, we're introducing those sorts of uh, we're using those bots in sort of specific areas um, we have like um, so we have primer and then we have our custom CSS but then we have this this kind of group of styles that we plan to move over to primer that are that are highly reused across the code base but it's going to take us a bit of time to to order and refactor that code and bring it up to a good standard before we move it over to primer so that's the sort of area where we tend to test things like this and be a bit more strict with the quality um, quality control around around that CSS. What sort of stuff is it that um, is reused a lot on the site that hasn't been uh, ported over to Primer yet? The one that pops into my head is like our select menu, which um, uh, we use for things like, uh, let me think, if you're on... Um, on an issue and uh, you're assigning somebody to that issue on the sidebar. Um, so that select menu is used and it has got a lot of different forms and variations to it. And so as you can imagine that that, that CSS is pretty complex. Uh, and yeah, yeah. Um, it, and it's, also, it's also because it's used in a lot of places, it means that you know, it's a, there's a lot of testing that we need to do when we when we refactor something like that and pull it out of um, the GitHub code base and over to Primer. Yeah, that seems like a really solid approach, I guess, you know, like taking all of the custom CSS and, and legacy stuff and just looking for opportunities to, I guess, consolidate, you know, diff slightly different implementations of the same thing and then, and then bring them into the system. It makes a ton of sense for sure. Yeah, one of the first um, components that we did that with was um, what we uh, simply called the box component. Um, I, I noticed that there was about seven or eight different patterns for what were essentially boxes. So, you know, a, a border with rounded corners, perhaps a header and a footer. Maybe the box has a list in it. Um, and a lot of the GitHub UI um, is in boxes. And we have... Uh, quite a lot of different um, patterns for for that that all do s similar but slightly different things, and so that was one of the that that was like to me a prime um, target for something that was worth auditing and refactoring and, and consolidating style wise because it it could it was used in so many places and it could bring like consistency to a lot of places in the code base um, straight away. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Um, something that I've heard as, I guess, a little bit of a criticism or fear of a very utility-focused approach is that people worry that it's easy to be too inconsistent with it, you know, like building sort of ad hoc components out of utilities and um, not really noticing when there's like an opportunity to create a higher level abstraction around that into like a more uh, higher level reusable component. Um, is that something that you've run into at all at GitHub, or do you have, uh, you know, strategies for making sure that um, if people are kind of building up complex UI out of mostly utilities, like looking for opportunities to make sure that if we need something similar to that, 
you know, again, that we have a way to make sure that they stay consistent with each other? Well, first of all, I would say that utilities are far more likely to give you consistency than custom CSS will because <laughs> they are built on a system. So I, I don't understand the argument for, for not using them from that point. Um, I agree, though, that, they, yeah, um, because they, they can be used in a number of different combinations, they don't, uh, on their own, necessarily give you the, the level of comp consistency you need if, you, if you're sort of thinking at the component level. Um, we, we have both, though. We have utilities and then we, we, patterns that are commonly used um, like boxes, like uh, like an overlay, like uh, buttons. Um, we we take a sort of a more of a BEM approach to to that CSS. Mm -hmm. If we were using other something like React or something, then we might abstract that in a different way and still, um, you know, keep a sort of utility centric approach in most places, but abstract it at the sort of React component level. Yeah. Um, for us right now, um, we we are doing that with SAS and and with uh, sort of taking a BEM approach to that. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of a and sort of I guess like people call it I guess like the functional CSS world. Uh, there's some people take it a little bit too uh, too far in my experience of. Uh, you know, it's an anti-pattern to create like a button class or something and then everything should be made out of uh, utilities. But I think the approach that you're talking about of, you know, creating abstractions using CSS when it makes sense is definitely the most practical way to go. Yeah, I don't think you have to necessarily choose one or the other. For us, it works to have to use to use both approaches um, and, it, you know, it takes a it takes people a little bit of time to um come around, I guess, to the, the functional CSS approach if they haven't been used to that. Um, but we've certainly um, seen a lot of people become fans of that approach at, at GitHub, and um, it's really helped um, people move, move faster. Um, but we do, we do like, like make sure that we do abstract patterns out that um, into components if we need to, if they're commonly used. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Rollbar. So here's what Paul, the founder of CircleCI, had to say about one of their favorite features of Rollbar and how it helps them keep things running at CircleCI. Before we used Rollbar, we used a different error tracking service, and we were shopping for a new one. And so we did the, the tour and looked at, at Rollbar and all of its competitors, and it was it was really the feature set of Rollbar that was super impressive and that made us go there. In particular, the people tracking, I think, is, is really, uh, it's it's not just a great feature, but it also kind of speaks our language because we're very focused on making sure that customers are happy. And we want to make sure that we have like an individual understanding of what happens to each customer. So the fact that we're able to click on you know, th this customer is experiencing a lot of bugs and to be able to follow the, the progression of bugs that they've been experiencing is very important. If we get an email from a customer and the customer says, you know, your your website keeps glitching on me and being able to to go to Rollbar and to say, okay, you know, this individual customer, this is how they're experiencing the site. Because otherwise you, you have to give like an overall state of things and overall things are looking good because if they weren't, we'd be dealing with it. So I've been using Rollbar a lot lately on my SaaS app, Nitpick CI, and loving it. Uh, if you want to check it out, you can head over to rollbar.com slash fullstackradio, and you can use their bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. So check that out, and uh, thanks again to Rollbar for sponsoring Fullstack Radio. Aside from uh, sort of the 
the heavy focus on utilities and some of the changes that have been happening with, with Primer and the design system at GitHub. Are there any other changes or improvements uh, that you've been making over the last you know year and a half or however long you've been working on the design systems at GitHub uh, with Primer that you think have really made a, a big difference and have really moved things forward? I mean, I think there's a lot of things that we've done around the processes um, um, that we use to maintain Primer and also monitor how people are using design systems, I guess. So um, some one of the big projects we did earlier this year was to um, move um, Primer into a monorepo and um, kind of change how we... Um, build sort of test releases of that um, and um, because previously although Primer was living in um, in its own repo um, we brought the kind of source of, the source of truth was actually still living in, in GitHub and we were pushing it out to that repo um, and that was partly so that we could kind of take stock of things and, and um, review what where everything was at um, so we moved that back out to its own repo, and it's now pulled in, in via NPM. And um, um, so after sort of setting up that monorepo, um, my colleagues helped um, us uh, use like continuous integration so that um, when any, anyone makes, opens a um, PR, that it builds a, a, a release candidate um, of Primer that we can then test in GitHub or other websites um, that use Primer because the, there's more website github websites than than com that that use it um so that's been a really interesting thing um for me to to work on and to learn more about um package management how we can be more confident about um how um that that we haven't broken the build um with primer um, and it was certainly something that was like a a bit more of a painful um workflow previously and we've started using uh, chat ops as well to like post. Um, uh, so when when anyone like opens a PR, um, it will post that in our in our Slack channel. It will it will post the build um, status when that's finished running on Travis CI. So that that helps I think with like building confidence and in, in in like did I do this right and like what's happening with my PR. Um, and it also like having the um, the npm um, releases um, build automatically that it removes some of those like manual steps as well which i think makes it easier not just for maintainers but also other contributors um, to primer yeah that makes a lot of sense so you talk about um like testing uh, sort of changes and stuff that you're making to the css does that include things like uh, trying to figure out if a change has like broken some ui on github that you might not have thought to check like that sort of thing not yet that is um we've been talking about visual setting up visual regression testing and i think that's something that we'll probably do uh soon or, or late sometime later this year at the moment we've been we we tend to sort of like start with trying these sort of testing things out on on primer itself before bringing that sort of thing over to github because obviously there's a lot more complexity there yeah uh so um yeah really the tests are really more like um does it build is it documented um is it uh have we used um 
Is it in accordance with like our, our, our lint rules, things like that? Yeah. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I think the the visual regression testing stuff sounds like a really hard problem to solve. Yeah. I know. I know that uh, it's not something I'm I'm much of an expert on, but we we did meet, we did talk about it recently, and um, I think there's there's some interesting things like Percy um, out there that uh, make this sort of thing easier than it might have seemed like in the past. And I'm, I think we're at the point where it would be really valuable for us to, to add that sort of thing into the workflow. Um, it will help us, our team as well, with, with code review as well. Um, sometimes just having, yeah, just those sort of visual <laughs> images of what's changed is, is uh, super helpful. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for us to, to work on that and add that. Awesome. Uh, something else that I've seen um, in a lot of uh, sort of CSS code bases that I've worked on that have kind of like really grown and started to get out of control is just um, having tons and tons and tons of different values for things. So I, I was I wrote a blog post a few months ago where I, I needed to do some research on this and found lots of examples of sites um, that had, you know, over 200 different text colors defined or like 150 background colors or, you know, 67 font sizes, like that sort of thing. Um, what was your approach like to trying to consolidate and simplify that um, with GitHub's code base? Um, well, I mean, I recently uh, worked on, on a new color system and uh, this, the, honestly, there's still more work to do on it and it's been a really interesting learning experience. Um, my, my approach is, is I, I, I'm trying to think how to describe this because it's, it's very different depending on what the thing is that I'm auditing. So you, UI, what the approach I take to UI, a UI pattern, um, audit might be a little bit different to something like introducing a color system. But, um, to me, it, it usually starts with research and, um, taking stock of what's, what's already there and how it's, how it's being used. And also understanding, like, uh, defining what problems are we trying to solve here? So with the color system work, um, we, we wanted, um, to refresh our colors. So there was like a, a sort of visual goal there in terms of like, we felt like the colors were feeling, um, a bit drab in mm -hmm. places. Um, if you watch that talk I did, you you may have seen that we called our old link blue colored dad jeans blue, <laughs> <laughs> with one of the designers named um, because it just yeah it looked like just kind of washed out. And... picked it. From <laughs> <laughs> so like um, there was there was a motivation there, um, but also um, there was a lack of. Um, any sort of real system there we didn't we had a few var color variables and and a small set of utilities um but there was um i think i think i've memorized this number now it was like 2049 different hex values wow and which is unmaintainable um and in the first uh in, in the first PR uh, that shipped to introduce that system, I think I killed about 579 of them. Wow. Um, and so there's still, you know, I've still got like uh, just under a thousand to go, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that, that approach means like, yeah, like um, what are our goals? And so our goals were like that we want to bright, brighten up the, the, the UI. We want it to feel a bit more modern. We also had some pro problems with um, color contrast in a lot of places. 
And so we wanted to improve that as well. Um, we also uh, wanted more, we wanted some clearly defined color options because um, people were using them in more of our ex sort of expressive parts of the site. So like the sort of logged out experience, the marketing pages. And so they, they wanted like a system of colors to use there. And they, they, they were using some like uh, purples in different ways and things like that. So um, it was about um, reducing the um, reducing the sort of 2049 hex values, um, but also providing more variables than there were and more utilities that, than there were at the same time. So um, there was a there was a big sense of re reducing that down, but also providing more more options at, at the same time. Um, and so then we looked at things like, you know, how, how do we use um, uh, color in our graphs? Like, should, should that be using the same, like, reds and greens as we use for, for status and um, for, for, the, for, the, for the diffs and things? Um, so um, there's a lot of things to take in consideration there, as well as defining, like, what, how do we define this system? And, and we ended up going with uh, something that was somewhat similar to um, the naming convention that, that material design uses with um, having like our base color at the 500 level and then going lighter and darker. But then we're also mapping that to um, uh, a, re a restricted kind of set of, of variables and utilities um, for the product in particular. So when I say the product, I mean like github.com. Yeah. And um, they don't need as many variations as like the marketing sites and things like that. So those variables are then mapped to things, a, a reduced set of like dark and light variations um, of colors. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm looking through um, the GitHub primer uh, utilities right now and i noticed something that you're doing a lot is using a uh, literal color names for a lot of things so like utilities like bg blue or bg green um where i think maybe a lot of people are used to doing things like bg primary or bg danger and what's the thought process behind like deciding whether or not to use the literal color names for things or trying to come up with you know quote unquote semantic color names for things or or, you know, I guess just anything that you've seen that kind of is involved in that decision-making process or reasons why one might be better than the other? Well, I think that the, the I think you can go either way. I think you've got to do what's right for your code base, like whether a functional class name or a presentational class name works better for you. And um, we've gone, we're moving, not everything is like this right now, but we're moving to more like just literal color names because... You know, red might mean danger in one place, but in another place, it's just showing code deletion, for example. Mm, yeah. So, or it means closed, you know, it means closed pull request or closed issue. So using those names doesn't always make sense. Um, so where, whereas like red is just red everywhere. Yeah. Something I've seen a lot, actually, that I think this that speaks to is... Um, a lot of people will use a framework like Bootstrap or something, and they'll use like button danger to make something red, not because it's dangerous. And then I, f I feel like you get into the situation where like you're using a functional class name for the wrong function. You know that to me that seems way worse than just using the literal color name. Yeah, exactly. And I think you know sometimes people make the argument like, what if you want to change red to orange or something like that? I mean, if you're going to do an update like that, then you've probably got a ton of things to update anyway. 
And so I, I don't really see that as a problem. Um, I think like, you know, for some people that use like sort of more of like a design token approach or whatever, um, where they, they want to use the same, um, class name or maybe variable name, but change its value depending on context. And then that might be a case where they, they want to use like a system like danger or, or primary or whatever. Um, it, it really, it really depends on, on how you're using that system, I guess. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So um, I guess just to kind of wrap things up, we've been going for uh, about 40 minutes now. If someone was to start working on a design system um, for a project or or someone works at a company where they're interested in uh, introducing a design system, what do you think some of the most important things they should be keeping in mind are? I think that to me the most important thing is to start off, start off with understanding what are the current um, problems and, and pain points um, for 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 that product and that and that team and the and the and the people working in that company, um, and that can go anywhere. Um, so yeah, that's honestly to me. Whereas where I start is like, what problem are you trying to solve? Just like any any other design problem. Um, but then like when, once you start to get into the place of defining a system is yeah, take a systematic approach to things. Um, and, and, and the thing that I think, uh, design systems, um, folks enjoy is that it, you know, is, is quite meta. So every, everything is a, is a, a micro system really. So like, um, the typography system has to take into account, like, how does this? How do these typography sizes work with line height, and how do they work with our spacing scale? Um, and to just you know, there's a lot of ex- great examples out there, and, and stick with like sensible numbers and sensible systems, highly composable values, um, and um, and start start with those in those sort of sensible places, and then grow to customize things um, based on your product and your UI and your brand. And the other pro tip I probably say is to just document everything (laughs) as you go. Um, I think a lot of um, people uh, leave that to later in the game and and it's it's so much more painful to do that later. Um, Document things as you go. Because if it's not documented, it it it, uh, it doesn't exist. Yeah, for sure. I'll say something that um that I really admire about what you guys are doing with the design system at GitHub is that um if you poke around the internet, you'll see a lot of people post style guides and stuff for projects that are are really just sort of like you know superficial. It looks pretty and doesn't really have any function, but it feels nice to have this nice, organized, beautiful document of all your styles and stuff. Uh, but it seems like a lot of what's happening with what you're working on at GitHub is the output of the design system work comes, a lot of it comes in the forms of tools, right, that are provided to the development team, whether that's um, in terms of, you know, fancy tools like the bots that crawl PRs and stuff, or just simple stuff like classes that you can use to achieve what you want to achieve in the UI um, without having to sort of reinvent the wheel or figure out, you know, how am I supposed to do this or how does someone with more experience in this area expect me to, to implement this sort of thing? I guess I would just be interested in knowing what sort of other like tangible benefits and stuff have you seen as a result um, of all the effort that's been 
poured into uh, the work that you do on design systems at GitHub? A few things. Yeah, I want to like respond to that that point about um, there's lots of like beautiful documentation sites for design systems out there. I, I think that this is is a bit of a problem for people. I think it, you know, you can look at material design and or Polaris by Shopify or Lightning Design System and you're, and you're like, okay, the, we, we need to do that before mm. we share our, our thing. It, it creates a huge amount of pressure. And, um, and not to say that like, we can't learn from those systems and, um, and borrow ideas from them. I think we can. But that solu- those solutions aren't necessarily right for your company. Um, you don't necessarily need um, something uh, to that scale. Um, it doesn't necessarily need to be as crafted. It's it's you've got to do what's right for your company, and and so that might just be some markdown files that are yeah rendered on in GitHub readmes. Um, it you know one of my um, uh, friends who works at a company that uses Confluence, they've just they've just stuck their their documentation and compliments. If, they, if that works, then fine. You know, um, you just like the important thing is that you you build the system and, and document it. Um, I think it is um, nice to be able to create sort of a you know a, a crafted, well presented, um, finished documentation site because I do think it helps you with um, promoting that internally. Um, so even if it's just a, an internal company style guide, when something's professionally finished, it you know it does it it's a, it might be taken you know more seriously and it, it can help it appear uh, more robust and and um, well thought out. Yeah, so for I, sure. Sure. Yeah, but it, it doesn't need necessarily need to be the to the scale of some of the the larger companies. Um, and also, they have the the goal of also wanting other developers to build on top of their their platforms, whereas that might not be um, your needs. And I, you know, I think um, I I may not be quite answering your direct question, but I think one of the things that um, we've been trying to do that I am proud of um, at GitHub is trying to work more in the open. So since moving um, the sort of source of truth into the primary repo. Um, anyone can come across and look at our PR discussions, our issues. People can open issues. People can open pull requests. They can see how we work. Um, they can crawl through our, our, our Git history, and um, at least since we've made it a monorepo, and, and see how we work on things. And I, I, I love being able to share that with the community because I think there's a lot of folks that are or trying, you know, struggling with this work and figuring out how do you build systems, how do you do this in a company. And this is, uh, by being open source, this is one way that we can share that work. And um, as soon as we can, like we, we have, you know, we do share the majority of our documentation is hosted with the module in, in, in the readme. Um, but we also are building our own um, uh, sort of, more nicely presented documentation site and and that will be open sourced in future too and we're trying to do that as early as possible we're trying to be comfortable with share you know sharing our work when it's in progress so that people can see how systems are really built and not just sort of like the end polished finished um, product yeah that's awesome um, what is the best way for uh, people to kind of keep up with uh, you and any of the stuff that you're working on 
Um, well, you can, if you want to keep in touch with Primer, then you can um, follow um, that repo, the uh, Primer CSS repo. We also do actually now have um, a, a Twitter account too. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I'm Broccolini. On, on Twitter, <laughs> which is a long story. <laughs> so, um, yeah, either Primus CSS or, or Broccolini. And we also have a GitHub design um, Twitter, too. So some of the, the work gets shared through there, too. Awesome. Well, thanks uh, so much for giving me your time and uh, coming on the show. It's been an absolute uh, pleasure talking to you about this stuff. I've enjoyed it, too. Thank you very much. If anybody is interested in uh, show notes for this episode, they'll be at fullstackradio.com slash 75. Uh, thanks to Rollbar for sponsoring the podcast this week. And if you have any feedback, uh, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter or send me an email. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. <laughs>